0: You're listening to TIP. I always find this interesting when investors really try to complicate things. And I always say, well, you know, these stocks you own, they're growing so fast. It's like, what, do you like companies that don't grow? <laughs> like, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. I think this goes back to the Warren Buffett quote about being a businessman and being an investor is I couldn't dare own, want to own privately a company that's declining or like what is a cigarette, but you're, you know, you're just trying to get a few last puffs out of it. I couldn't imagine wanting to own that privately.
1: In this episode, I chat with Braden Dennis about his entrepreneurial history and how it impacted his stock investing, how his background in engineering has helped him solve problems, why he created FinChat and where he sees it going in the future, his investing philosophy, the future of AI for finance use cases, how he utilizes key performance indicators in investing using technology, why he'll regret not owning Costco, and a whole lot more. I've known Braden for a few years now, and I've enjoyed watching him grow his excellent product FinChat. Interestingly, when I was looking at developing a piece of software, Braden was kind enough to chat with me on my idea and help me figure out if it was feasible or not. Ever since I found FinChat, I've based my entire investing system on filtering stocks using the software. It makes things simple for me, and since I like stocks with a few growth numbers, using FinChat easily helps me figure out if a business meets my stringent requirements. As time goes by, more cool features have been added to the platform, and it just keeps getting better and better with each day. Additionally, I've listened to Braden and his co-host numerous times on the Canadian Investor Podcast, they've discussed in detail some businesses that I am deeply interested in on the show in Aritzia and Topicus. Braden loves investing, and he also loves quality businesses. Additionally, he loves leveraging tech to make the experience of investing quicker, more efficient, and more enjoyable. So if you want to get more insights into the future of AI and finance and tech, make sure to tune into this week's episode. Now, without further delay, let's jump right into this week's episode with Brayden Dennis.
2: Celebrating 10 years, you are listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host, Kyle Greve.
1: Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring Braden Dennis onto the show. Braden, welcome to the podcast. Kyle,
0: thanks for having me. It's been fun watching your journey over the last year because you and I have met a few times and uh, it's cool to see what position you're in now and doing amazing things and having great combos.
1: Thank you. So I'm a self-proclaimed fanboy of Braden Service's uh, FinChat, which encompasses Stratosphere as well. It's an incredible product for any stock picker who wants access to a lot of historical data, and a lot of other really cool metrics like KPIs and compound annual growth rates. And there's so much stuff you can do with it. So Finchat also has a very novel way of utilizing AI in the investing process. We will be covering this in a lot more detail, but I want to begin this discussion by asking more about your history as an entrepreneur and how this has helped you as an avid investor. So my first question is about your entrepreneurial journey. What life events and experiences caused you to follow this path? I always knew from a young age
0: that I would try to do something entrepreneurial. And you don't know what that's going to look like. You don't even know what you're going to have for dinner at that time, let alone what you're going to do in 10 years career-wise. But my first instinct or first foray into what resembles entrepreneurship was actually when I was a student. I was running my own tutoring business, which I look back on and cherish some of the hilariousness of this venture i was in my 3rd year of my engineering degree and i had this awful gap of 3 hours between my 4pm lab and my dreaded 7pm night class and there's not a lot going on it's just it's just nothingness during this time and of course you know i could probably go be productive and do my work but Kyle, that just was not going to happen. And so I was proficient at math and sciences from a young age, and, and becoming an engineer was a natural fit. And for a more senior engineering student, high school math is not only a breeze, dare I call it fun. And I can't recall what sparked me to do this, but I posted on the local classifieds engineering student at the University of Guelph available to tutor high school math and physics. My goal was just, let me just fill this gap and make some beer money, essentially. You know, I got a couple hours here. And I recall getting 20 plus parents frantically calling me, texting me, emailing me, are you available like tonight? You know, it wasn't just, hey, next semester, my son or daughter has physics class and I want to get prep. It was like urgent. And I had to actually take the post down because within two days I was fully slotted with what I wanted. I had these four hours or six hours blocked away with four students, and it, I got them to actually bring their kid right to campus in between my classes. So it, it couldn't have been more convenient for me. Now it was not a ton of money, but I was charging like forty to fifty bucks an hour for at the time for me, Kyle. This. This felt like I was rolling in it, and uh, that was probably my first actual experience. And um, I learned a lot from it. And this is what I say to anyone who wants to do anything entrepreneurial: is you learn by doing the damn thing. Like, there's no really. There are amazing books that I'm happy to talk about that I've learned and stole ideas. There's so many mentors that they don't even know who I am, but I learn a lot from them but nothing kind of replaces like
1: actually having to do the work and learning from customers over time. So being an entrepreneur carries different responsibilities than being a pure investor. I'm interested in learning more about who your biggest inspirations in entrepreneurship were as you transitioned away from engineering into entrepreneurship after your obviously your first foray which was while you were in school. I
0: learned a lot from my first four or five internships with a company called Magna International. It is a Canadian-based auto part manufacturer. They have around 350 auto manufacturing facilities around the world, Europe, Asia, South America, Mexico, US, Canada. And I learned something very important that runs the world of auto manufacturing called Kaizen. This is a Japanese term made to mean continuous improvement. That's, what, that's the translation from Japanese. And that word coming from you know, the industrial revolution of the Japanese being such proficient and prolific manufacturers, especially in the auto industry, and they are still today, Kaizen rules their world. It's how they actually produce margins. It's how they continually get better. It's how they automate more processes. And so, it is the thought of continual improvement. And this was a big part of the culture. Like I would say the largest part of the culture and how the companies in that space orient themselves. And this made a really lasting impact on me with almost everything. Like whether it's health, whether it's my business, whether it's trying to be a good guest for this podcast, it's like, how can you learn from all the stuff that you've done and just continually get a little bit better. And that, that's all that Kaizen means. And if you do that for you know, a lifetime, it leads to like tail effect, like tail
1: outcomes that you wouldn't expect if you just keep doing it. So you mentioned that you were, not, uh, you were an engineer. And uh, one of my big mentors, who has no idea who I am, is Monish Pabrai, who was also an engineer. So what, what experiences from your engineering background do you think have helped you become a better investor? Certainly, how to think about
0: problems. I believe there is a direct correlation between success in a career and success of a business, directly correlated if you're to graph them out XY axis to problems solved, both in number of them and complexity of them. There is a, you know, you multiply those together and you basically get some resemblances of career success. And so, That's what engineering is, right? Like, yeah, you learn math. Yeah, you learn physics. You basically just learn how to think and learn how to solve problems. And you can translate that to anything. It definitely translated to how I think about businesses qualitatively and importantly, qualitatively as well. When it comes to things that made big impacts on me, I'll give you two examples. And the first book I ever read was called The $100 Startup, which you can find at any bookstore. It's become a bit of a popular book. And really, the idea around it is is start with a small idea and go for it. And so that got me to actually do something and take action. I think any book that gets you to actually take action is really good. And the first autobiography I ever read that has a lasting impact on me is called The Magna Man by Frank Stronick. I was just talking about his company there. and he had a really unique insight on how to build a billion-dollar franchise. His goal was to make as many of his employees and trusted plant managers, make them multimillionaires in as large a quantity as possible. He figured that the unit economics would flow back to him very handsomely. He would be rewarded in droves if he made as many multimillionaires as possible. And he made a lot of them, like in the thousands. And so that thesis was, was clearly correct and played out well. And I think about that a lot. Me and my co-founder sat down. And we thought like, what do we want from this business Like, financially? you know, What do we want lifestyle? What do we want financially? What do we want impact to have? What do we want people to feel when they use the product? And I said, as CEO financially, it is my job to make sure every single one of you have at least... 1 million liquid from this venture. If I didn't do that, I failed as a CEO. And I think that those kind of like goals give you kind of ground for what you're doing. And of course, not every venture is just about money, but it's, it's an important one in the beginning of these companies. And uh, The Magna Man by Frank Stronach taught me that.
1: So as I previously mentioned, I love FinChat. And part of the reason I like it so much is that it simply does a lot of things that I couldn't find in any other products. So how have your abilities in entrepreneurship and investing helped you create this product and what made you want to create FinChat in the first place? Well, thank you for mentioning
0: like, the product. I'm I'm glad to see so many people say that these days. It's been kind of amazing to feel that. And you know what? Like the one thing I want to really make clear, you know, with this podcast is we still feel like we don't know what we're doing. And I think that that's like always going to be there. You always just kind of feel like there's something better we could be doing. This could be optimized. There's like kind of like an endless amount of work to do. I'm just trying to learn from people like you who learn who use the product as much as possible. Like my original kind of thesis for creating it was basically to scratch my own itch, was to create a product that I wanted to see and just started working on it as a kind of side project. But really at the end of the day like it's for me to be able to learn from you, get the feedback on the product, iterate on it, and just keep doing that over and over and over again. And I think that that's ultimately what you get is a good product. And, and that goes back to continual improvement, right? Like If you give me one good piece of feedback, I write that down and I go do that. One, I made you happy customer. Two, our product got continually better. And we're just going to do that and ship over and over and over again.
1: So yeah, that's how I think about that. So one of Warren Buffett's most famous quotes is, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman and I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor. So since you are both a businessman and an investor, I'm interested in knowing if you feel this quote is accurate, what areas of business have you taken to become a better investor and what areas of investing you've taken to become a better entrepreneur?
0: I do think that quote is very accurate and there's no one better equipped to say that quote then Mr. Buffett himself, not only being Buffett the investor, but Buffett the businessman and Buffett the entrepreneur, Buffett the value creator, Buffett the employer of many people creating a lot of amazing opportunities for people. And I do think that it's right. And One thing that it has changed for me as an investor is I've always been a fundamental long-term investor. Where it changed for me is that that focus really, really consolidated too. I only care about analyzing these companies at the core and being rational at, at assessing them, understanding what makes them tick, understand the numbers and the KPIs that actually move the needle for these business, and basically ignoring everything else. I think what it's actually done for me has been more selective in what I pay attention to more than anything and that's been really instrumental to me it's taught me a lot about concentration being a little bit more comfortable with concentration it's basically led to my ideal portfolio turnover being zero of course that's you know harder said than done and i think the product is especially useful for someone who's doing this kind of research it's not really useful for someone who figure, who's trying to figure out what amazon stock's going to do right at the close at 405 p.m. It's wonderful for those specific use cases that I think actually work. (laughs) I've never been convinced uh, that it is a worthwhile pursuit to invest the the previous way than the latter way. Of course, you can make money that way, I'm I'm sure, and and lots of people have done it. I've just never been convinced that it's a satisfying way to run your career and intellectually think about things all day long. You, You have a certain amount of brain power and time on this earth me trying to figure out what Amazon's going to do at 4.05 at the earnings close is not something that I want to spend my time doing. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California and our Airbnb home That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com.
1: I know you just raised another $1.5 million in funding for FinChat. How has your experience been in the fundraising process? And what are the, some of the key lessons that you know now that you wish you knew earlier? Fundraising
0: gives you the ability to live in the future. Now, fundraising in itself is not a milestone. And fundraising is a lot easier when you have a great company and a lot of momentum. I think startups are defined by momentum in almost every single facet. And fundraising is no different. In the early days, the people who are doing sales, doing fundraising, usually that's like the founding CEO. And their job is to convince people to pay attention to what you're doing, convince people in this case to give you money in what you're doing. But in itself, it's not a milestone. It is a tool to live in the future. So if it's things that we would be probably having to do in a year from now, we can do now because we have the ability to and we have the resources to. We can grab the human resources to be able to do things that we want to do. And so really, just it's just like, oh, wow, wire hits the bank. I'm living in 2025 in terms of the things
1: that I'm able to do instead of having to wait. I'd like to switch our focus to Finch app. When you first decided to create stratosphere.io, what was your initial target audience? Initially, it was self-directed investors.
0: People like myself, you know, family and friends that I thought would be interested in the product. I'm also on a weekly podcast called The Canadian Investor, and it was basically a product to give to that audience. I thought it fit, you know, our content well. It fit the self directed investor. Nowadays, we have built something so extensive, uh, you know, through the years where tons of professional firms are using the product and our bread and butter really is like small family office 3 to 5 analyst firms that are long only on the buy side who don't have complex software buying processes it's not that we can't serve the huge investment banks you know the 50 billion aum companies we can i think the product fits for them extremely well too but they have really complex long buying processes that we don't currently have the muscle to flex to be capable on winning those, but we're certainly gearing up to, to think about winning those and, and having the muscle to flex on that. That's, that's a big push for us right now. But in the early days, those can deserve as a giant distraction. When you're used to buying processes for these subscriptions, taking maybe a 15-minute zoom call to a 15-month drawn-out paperwork of, with lawyers and costs that you cannot absorb it just doesn't make
1: any sense and is largely serves as a distraction so i've used ai quite a bit to help me understand things better but one thing i've noticed is that it's woeful at anything to do with math how have you found ai's mathematical limitations while you integrate ai into a financial platform
0: this was 6 to 8 months of us iterating tweaking prompt engineering building out internal technology to turn natural language with ai into querying a database of institutional financial data that we know is correct and confining its responses to that. And that comes with pros and cons. I think almost all product decisions comes with pros and cons across the board when you're building software. This means that it's extremely good and reliable at answering questions related to public equities, whether it's qualitative, quantitative screening, make me a graph of Costco's EV to EBITDA, stuff like that, it's extremely, extremely good at. But if I'm just like, you know, reach into your brain and and do something, it basically won't do that. And so that's a conscious decision we've made to make sure that investors are getting the right answer. Here's a great example, which was like an amazing thing for our marketing. Google Bard, I asked it, what is Amazon's Amazon Web Services revenue last year in 2022? And it replied eighty-one billion, almost the correct number. And Finch turns a correct number is eighty point one billion. They got the decimal point wrong. And that might seem like such a small thing, right? You know, if I, if I'm just doing quick and dirty math, what's the difference between eighty point, What's a, what's the difference between a billion between friends, right? Uh, of a company of this scale, but when it comes to investors and financial data, that's just not acceptable. It really is just not acceptable to hang your hat on that to build a presentation and to invest your clients' money based on incorrect information is not acceptable. And so we've built our entire product and thesis with that in mind.
1: So, do you envision a future where AI is better at understanding math? And what kind of opportunities do you think this would open up for your platform? It can be really good at math
0: with the right prompt engineering and the right tweaking and and, and the right use case today. Uh, I think generically, LLMs have been built and trained on largely text-based information. We are in half. We're you know we're on batter two of the you know top of the first inning. Like it is so so early, and I know that's such a cliche thing to say, but this was a 2023 story. ChatGPT, you know, reached five reached one million users in five days. It launched on November thirtieth. So, on December 4th, roughly, it had reached their first million users, which was a record for a tech product of that size. But you know, we're getting into the holidays at this point in 2022. By the time everyone knows about it, and by, time, by the time it kind of stole the, the conversation, both casually and professionally, was in the, the winter of 2023. So, this is, we're recording this in 2023, basically a year later. And I believe that it is still the very early innings. And it's going to get continue to get so much better. The pace of iteration, it just seems like, you know, every day whatever you thought was exciting is no longer exciting. There's that new thing. That's going to happen a lot over the next like five
1: years. And it's it's going to get tiring, but it's it it's going to be happening regardless. So I recently asked FinChat, what moat does Apple have? And it gave a surprisingly good answer on the strength of its brand which leads me to believe that there are some use cases for AI and FinChat in particular, in terms of better understanding a company qualitatively. How do you think we can use AI today to improve our qualitative understanding of a business? FinChat can do a lot of comprehensive and challenging
0: tasks from build me a discounted cash flow model on company X, Y, or Z. Give me a list of companies that meet criteria X, Y, Z. It's really good at doing all those things already, but when it comes to qualitative, I still really love the most basic prompts of what does CrowdStrike like actually do? What does DataDog do? Who are there? Like, why does anyone use this? Explain like I'm five. Like for like ramping up on an idea, I think is where it really kind of shines. Because we've loaded it with all those like KPIs and segments and, and transcripts and filings, like it actually has a pretty deep understanding of all of these companies. And those things are really kind of instructive on phase one of your research and just really understanding. Like For me as an investor, I start with quality first, all the way down to quantitative. It's not that I one's more important. It's just that's how my brain works. And I actually, and valuation is an extremely part of my, important part of my process, but I do it last. And there's a reason for that. That's really what I love FinChat to, for right now. At risk of sounding like a, you know, a very simple prompter, I think simple is good with almost everything.
1: It seems like AI is improving on a pretty regular basis, like you just pointed out, and the potential use cases are tar- starting to expand. So let's look into the future a little bit. What are some future uses of AI that you are looking forward to integrating into your platform that maybe aren't available to you today?
0: I'm really excited about task, FinChat being task based. And what that means is that today it's very retrieval based. And what that means is give me Uber's total revenue by year over the last, you know, since they've been public or, you know, since their, their S1 data is available. Or give me Airbnb's take rate over the last like four quarters. And it's really, really good at taking that, chunking it up, giving me the right answer and, and summarizing it. And that's retrieval. That's a retrieval of information that exists. I think summarizing is also another retrieval type prompt. Task-based is what we're just starting to scratch the surface on, which is... You know, build me that DCF, build me this screen, build me a report for my clients, build me a graph that has Netflix subscribers compared to Disney plus subscribers and make the Disney color blue and the Netflix color red and put my logo on it and make a summary of why to my clients or at least the start of a summary to why my clients on why we own Netflix compared to Disney. Actually, add the average revenue per user globally. Let's also put that on the graph and as a line chart. And today, FinChat can do all of those things, but not all at once. And so, if it could do all of them at once, now, now it's actually done my job for me instead of been a tool to do my job. Do you know what I mean? Like right now, it's a really great tool to do my job, but I really want it to do my job, especially if it's something that doesn't add value to my business or I could use that time to go get new clients. Go to a conference and get my name out there. Uh, you know, if I'm an uh, investment advisor, you know, meet with my go, go, have lunch with them instead, right? Like things that are actually going to move the needle for your business, instead of like ah, it's going to take my job. It's like ah, it's going to take all the stuff you don't want to do in your job first. Uh, let's let's start with those first.
1: So let's look at the mixing of quantitative and qualitative analysis. What's the best way that long-term fundamental focus investors can utilize technology and AI to help them become better long-term investors? Let's look at an
0: example I was doing today, which is the company Uber. Uber is a company that we all know well. Uber is a company that probably is in... The app is probably on the home screen of your phone. And it is a company that, for the first maybe two years of it being publicly traded and giving the S1, that initial filing, a real shot and trying to understand it, I thought to myself, this is a terrible business. This is a venture capital phenomenon. This is a zero interest rate phenomenon. How on earth is this thing losing $5 billion a quarter? at this scale? like At what level of scale does this work? Like, You know what I mean? That was my initial thought. A superpower for an investor is to be able to change your mind when the facts change. That is the number one most important trait in my mind to investors, both on the companies you own and the companies you don't own, is to be able to change your mind when presented new facts. And since then, Uber's competition has mostly died. Since then, their take rates have gone from mid-teens, low-teens low to high 20% without a blink in growth. And that is material. That is absolutely material. If I triple my, the amount of money I'm taking in this transaction, Kyle, and, and you start using my service more, there's something very valuable to the service I'm offering and something very valuable to the moat that I'm building and how defensible it is. And so I think that this is a perfect example of like the data we have and how I'm able to kind of graph it. So I graph total trips on the platform, which in the lows of COVID went from 737 million in the, in the June quarter to 2.5 billion in the most recent September quarter, while the take rate went from you know, mid-teens to 27.5% during that time. And for me, as an investor, a fundamental investor, I scratch my head and go, "Hmm, something's changed massively about this business. It's actually spinning off real cash." I told myself I'd never touch it with a ten-foot pole. It's at the top of my watch list today, Kyle. Like it is. It's it's maybe one of top three names on the podium at any at any time right now. And so I think that that's a kind of perfect example of something I was just using it for, like. 20 minutes before recording this conversation as a, as a really useful example.
1: So I like how you use quantitative metrics to start the investing analysis process. In a recent conversation you had on the Millennial Investing Podcast, you spoke about the importance of a growing business. This is aligned with what I also look for in a good investment. My question is, what specific benchmarks are you looking for in specific quantitative metrics? I always find this
0: interesting when investors really try to complicate things. And I always say, well, you know, these stocks you own—they're growing so fast. It's like, what do you like companies that don't grow? <laughs> like, you know, it, it's it's fascinating to me. I think this goes back to the Warren Buffett quote about being a businessman and being an investor. Is I couldn't dare own, want to own privately a company that's declining, or like what is a cigarette? But you're, you know. You're just trying to get a few last puffs out of it. I couldn't imagine wanting to own that privately. Publicly, I have so many options. <laughs> there are, what, 57,000 active global listings today? No one's holding a gun to my head and saying I have to own cra- crummy businesses once some of the best in the world happen to be publicly traded. And let's just reverse engineer this. Return decomposition comes from free cash flow per share growth. And so if I know that, that's probably a pretty good place to start. And it's not so much that I own growthy names. I own a few, but more of them look like Visa than Tesla. Visa is not a growth stock by any means, but it has a wide moat. It's a wide moat that I understand well. They have sustained growth in the double digits, long runways of growth to disrupt cash in emerging markets world-class margins and return on invested capital. So more of the companies I own look more like Visa than Tesla uh, when it comes to growthy. Like I, don't, I don't think that they're too growthy or too meme but they certainly are growing. And if they weren't, then I frankly don't want to own equity.
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi, netsuite.com slash mi, that's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back
1: to the show. So you've stated that you currently don't own CrowdStrike, but that it might be a business that you add to your portfolio due to its growing EBITDA margins, growing recurring revenue and impressive revenue growth rates. Now, while revenue growth is impressive, it does seem to be dropping each year how do you factor in these decreasing revenue growth rates as part of your analysis of this business?
0: CrowdStrike, Cloudflare. This is a long list of companies I keep on a watch list and dashboard of being in the tech space, knowing how, how important they've become, knowing how amazing their product is, knowing that they have a lot of pricing power built in probably under-earning. Cloudflare, for sure, under-earning. I look at these names and I think they're pretty amazing. The growth is solid. Investors have done extremely well owning them. But if 2021 taught us anything, you got to learn something from 2021. 2021 taught us anything. You can't just pay any price. There is no enterprise in the world that is worth infinite money. And so, if I know that and I reverse engineer that, I have to be disciplined. And for those two names in CrowdStrike in particular, I think I was tweeting, I was like, you know, I, I might just YOLO it and buy a share at this point. Like the annual recurring revenue growth is fantastic. The you know, product's amazing, 140% dollar based net retention rate. So, you know, their current customers are spending like 40% more than their previous year without even gaining any new customers. Just world class type numbers. But I've never gotten a point where I think I understand the company enough. I would never be able to go do even a five-minute presentation on why they're better than their competitors. I've never been able to tell anyone what the product does beyond very, very basic understanding of it. So I'm just not in a position to own the stock. And it's not that i am never going to be in a position to own the stock. I, I, want, I want to learn more about this company. I want to learn a lot about a lot of companies. I think that's just kind of my infinite curiosity. But until I am in a position where I understand the company extremely well, you know, no called strikes in investing, right? Like You don't get killed by it sitting on your watch list. You get killed by the stock getting crushed and you make a bad decision because you don't know what they do let alone how they're going to sustain a competitive advantage.
1: So you brought a really good point there about you know, not being able to just even like a five-minute presentation on what this business does. And I really like that as, a, you know, as a, at least a stepping stool to understanding a business. But there's also something to be said that you know, when you actually own equity in a business, it kind of forces you to better understand the business. So how do you like to balance those two? Like, you know, do you need to know 100% of your target amount of knowledge before you ever buy a business? Or are you willing to make a starter position and then build up that, uh, that knowledge base over time? Look, I'm going to ruffle some
0: feathers here. I think starter positions and incentive to learn more about the business, I'll buy a small position here and then I'll figure it out later. I'll figure out what the company does later. That's not investing to me. That's my opinion. Of course, many people do it. It works for a lot of people. I never try to knock on anyone for their investing style. I think that that's both immature and irrational. However, for me, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense if my capital is at risk. I actually only define my capital being an immense risk by I don't really know the company well enough to be a shareholder. And so what's the point of being half in? I think that it does a couple of weird things portfolio allocation-wise too. You end up with a bunch of companies. You end up with shiny object syndrome with all these companies you don't really understand. Kyle, if I ever, post, if I ever share my portfolio and there's more than 35 names, you, you grab me, you go to my brokerage account, and we go together and we sell all of them and own a diversified, low-cost basket of stocks like the S&P 500. If that ever happens, you promise me That is exactly what we will do because I just don't think that that's a way that makes sense as an investor
1: from my view of the world. All right. I'll make that promise to you. (laughs) (laughs) So I was browsing your uh, 20 stocks that you own on X, and I liked what I saw. One observation was that you have a good mix of market caps in your portfolio, ranging from small caps to mega caps. What adjustments do you make to your analytical process based on the growth stage of your stocks? Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. And that tweet got tons of engagement because
0: you know, people always want to know what people actually own. You know, you know, what's the portfolio behind the uh, profile picture? And it's 19 individual names today, but that is a bit misleading because if you look at the spinoffs that have generated, I don't sell any of those. There's multiple kind of duplicates in the tickers. So, it's actually really around like 13 individual companies. And that's kind of like a materially different n- amount of concentration that people think about. When it comes to how I think about small caps versus large caps versus thinking about the growth stage versus m- mature stage, I don't really think about it that much. If a company happens to be a $6 billion in market cap, I don't look at it as a different investment thesis than if it was $600 billion in market cap. And you can certainly make the argument that the room, the ceiling for upside is much better for a company at only $6 billion in market cap. But if I'm trying to compound my money, not lose money, and do this for a really long time, both ideas can work really, really well. Both ideas can work exceptionally well. And it's something I think about, but it's not like the be-all, end-all. I'm not going to put myself in a box and say, I only own things over $10 billion in market cap where I only own uh, micro caps under 500 million because that's where there's going to be the most opportunity. I want to limit the amount of companies I'm looking at by quality instead of a screening metric. And if a screening metric helps me layer down what that quality is, like I I know I'm going to want to buy companies that are growing free cash flow per share, maybe that's a good place to start. But I want to start with my universe of this is the hundred and fifty. This is the hundred greatest companies on earth. Let's go from there. That's 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 how I like to think about investing and how I feel confident owning something for ten years. Because when something trades sideways for five six years, it is not fun, like at all. Like it's almost worse than it trading down. Like that's just the worst. It's terrible. And, but if I know that company really well, and I know it's going to continue to compound, and I feel good about owning it, then I'm
1: going to have a better time. So you brought up uh, an interesting point right there about inefficiencies in the market. So I'm interested in knowing uh, where do you think the most inefficiencies are today in the market?
0: After saying all that, it is very clear that small cap stocks are at historically low multiples compared to large caps like there's never been a, dis- a larger discrepancy it's not so much that small caps are so beat up and mid caps are so beat up it's that large caps have done so so well they make up the magnificent 7 make up like 30% of the S&P 500 market cap weighted year to date if you remove those top 7 companies the S&P did like 4 or 5% year to date if you include them it did like high 20s It's a gigantic disparity. That being said, you have to wonder to yourself are those companies a lot materially better? Are they so intertwined? Like, I think both of us are staring at a a collection of suites of Google, Microsoft, and Apple products right now. I know I am. I I think you probably are too, both software and hardware. The margin profile is exceptional. They're going to produce a few hundred billion in free cash flow. Those are not just numbers we just kind of throw around. And so when it comes to opportunities, there's always opportunities if your time horizon is long enough, right? Like if you were to ask me, what's a stock that I think is going to go up this month? I'd say, I don't have an answer for you. That's not an answer that I can possibly give you with any degree of confidence. And if anyone can, run away. (laughs) It's not good advice. If you have a time horizon long enough, which many of the listeners of this podcast do, then your opportunities now. Look back. Stocks have climbed the wall of worry for over 100 years. And we're now at all-time highs, despite all the worries. The only thing that is consistent in this world, in a guide to things that never change, to steal Morgan Housel's new book title, Worry never, never stops. It is never going to stop. And there's never going to be a world where you go, everything's great. It's time to put some money to work in the market. That
1: doesn't happen. It won't happen. So what do you do? You, You deploy capital and you invest it for a long time. So I think you can learn a lot about someone's investing philosophy by asking two questions. One, what's the most concentrated position in your portfolio? And two, what's the longest time period you've held onto a stock? So I'd like to pose those two questions to you. How well do you know my
0: portfolio? Because this might be a shocking answer for, uh, for, for many people. Constellation software is roughly half. Uh, so anywhere between half and 55% of the portfolio. If you include the spins and the mothership company, this is ticker CSU on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We're talking about inefficiencies and opportunities. I think outside of US markets, you have less eyeballs, less, less analysts. Funds are arbitrarily constrained. And I think you can find really good opportunity generally. Constellation Software is a giant conglomerate of niche vertical market software companies headed up by Mark Leonard. And so when someone says, how do you feel comfortable with 55% of your portfolio being in one stock? And I go, one, didn't start that big. (laughs) It certainly did not start that big. Look at the stock chart and you'll understand what I'm talking about. And two, if a handful of the companies they own go to zero, I probably won't even notice as a shareholder. One, because they're 950 companies strong as of the latest quarter, I think, based on estimates, deploying capital into new companies at all-time highs, deploying capital into, at all-time highs in terms of the number of companies and the size of companies. That's a really important metric for a serial acquirer of niche vertical market software companies like Constellation. And I don't have any plans to, to sell a single share unless something changes. Uh, because you know, you never, you never want to just say, you know, never is ne- a long time, right? Like, like if I was to say, I'm never going to buy a share of Uber when I read their S1. and uh, Now here I am thinking about, wow, this is actually impossible to replicate because of those reasons that I thought it was a terrible business, then you're onto something there, right? So, you know, never is a long time. And is CSU also the longest tenured uh, stock in your portfolio? Yeah, I'm looking at the names here. It's certainly one of them. I'd, I'd have to look back on my brokerage, but I'll give you a couple names that I've owned for closest to 10 years. I've been investing for 10 years. Uh, I bought a low-cost index ETF shortly after my 18th birthday. Turning 29 this year, so it gives you an idea of how long I've owned Constellation for a long time. I've owned WSP Global and Engineering Rollup for a really long time. I've owned Autodesk, the architecture, engineering, and consulting uh, construction software company for a really long time. Those are those are a few names that come to mind. Visa and Mastercard owned in size for a really long time. These are these are what I call core positions. Just like. If I was to sell everything else off and would, I'd feel just fine owning these at night.
1: So a question I often ask myself is, what's the best business out there that I don't own today that I will probably regret in the future? It helps me look at opportunity costs of what I currently own and highlights any risk associated with owning it at current prices. So I want to pose this question to you. What do you not own now that you think you should, aside from CrowdStrike, and what's holding you back from owning it? Oh, it's an easy answer. It's Costco.
0: I don't even have to think about it. Why I like the idea? Well, the company is obviously fantastic. The membership model was brilliant. The metrics around that are brilliant. The efficiency is, is brilliant. Basically, no working capital because the, you know, the inventory turns are so high, the customers basically finance all of the working capital. There is an actual network effect. There is a flywheel with the membership. There is a compounding of the quality of what they serve their customers. As they have more customers, prices get lower, lower prices bring more customers, and then the loop continues. Now they have more customers and lower prices. You have this never-ending kind of amazing feedback loop that has created a phenomenal business. They have flipped the idea of stakeholders on its head, Wall Street and most public companies act in the interest of shareholders first. Costco flipped that on its head. They said, we're going to treat customers and employees, the other two stakeholders in this three-legged stool, with utmost priority. As a result, shareholders will get handsomely rewarded. And that has been true times a million. Why I don't own it? The answer is, I can't wrap my head around paying basically 40 times earnings, on a company growing high single digits on the bottom line, top line. It's undisputably probably one of the greatest business of all time. It is arguably the most defensible business of all time. It is going to be around when I'm on my deathbed. I can say that with complete confidence. And so that's probably why I'll regret not buying it uh, today, is because if those things are true, and in 40 years from now, Costco stock is not a lot higher than it is today, I will be very surprised. But I have rules around what price I'm willing to pay. And sometimes that's just as simple as a valuation that I cannot compute as making any resemblances of sense. The problem with Costco today, in my opinion of the thesis of the stock And trust me, I'll be wrong on this. And that's why I should own it. The problem with it is they only open around 8 to 12 to 14 new stores a year. And that number has been very, very steady. To justify the growing market cap and to justify the growing multiple on the stock, there needs to be some sort of acceleration and I get why they're very deliberate about store openings and, and, and grow slow. But if they just you know accelerated the pace, just like Constellation and Mark Leonard are accelerating the pace of the, the point capital to justify the growing multiple and the growing market cap, then you can actually make a case of market beating returns. Of course, just as you laid out in the question there, I'm probably going to regret not owning it. And I probably should smarten
1: up and own one of the greatest enterprises the world's ever seen. Yeah, I uh, completely agree with you on that pick. That's that's a really good one. Brayden, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. This was an awesome conversation. Before we say goodbye, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about FinChat?
0: FinChat is at finchat.io. It is a complete investment research terminal and AI product for fundamental investors. And I am on a weekly podcast called The Canadian Investor. And uh, for those in Canada, there's lots of content for you, but you will be pleasantly surprised if you're not in Canada that about 90% of the conversation is about US stocks. So uh, that is a weekly podcast that The Canadian Investor you can find anywhere on your podcast player.
1: Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon.
2: Thank you for listening to TIP make sure to follow millennial investing on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on our episodes to access our show notes transcripts or courses go to the this show is for entertainment purposes only before making any decision consult a professional this show is copyrighted by the investors podcast network written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting